you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Right before we get started with our podcast today, let me get in another plug here for our Patreon page. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, then please consider becoming a patron. It'll help support the podcast, keep us as ad-free as possible. I know there are some ads to be in some of these shows, depending on where you're listening, but they are there occasionally. Um, don't amount to much, certainly not enough to uh, not have your support on the Patreon page. Don't forget, patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. Fantastic stuff. I love that chat. And let me send a warm welcome and my heartfelt thanks to our new patron, Jim. Uh, Jim, welcome to the Diggin' Oak Island family, and thank you so much for joining and becoming a patron of the show. Uh, again, folks, uh, go to patreon.com slash Island to sign up. Five bucks a month. Uh, you can support the podcast, and you can cancel any time. But if you also want to make sort of a one-time monthly donation, you don't want to get into the, or sorry, a one-time donation, not get into the monthly thing. That makes all the sense in the world to me. You can make a one-time donation via Venmo. That's the only way I got, and it's for my music business. You can go to at Dave McBride Music. That's the username you can use on Venmo to make a one-time donation. And I want to thank Jake, uh, who left a donation this week. Jake, thank you so, so much. Your generosity means everything to me and my family. Thank you so much. Uh, and thanks for becoming a part of the family here. As always, let's start today's podcast with emails and messages from you, the listeners. And we'll start with a follow-up from Joe, who uh, asked about Oak Island's historic sea levels last week. Go back and have a listen to that podcast. The answer to his question actually didn't come from me. It came from geologist and co-author of the book Oak Island Mysteries Solved, Gordon Fader. And it was an absolutely fascinating uh, answer, to say the least. This week, Joe just wrote to thank Gordon and I for the answers and... Um, uh, and Joe, I only mentioned that you did this because Gordon and I are actually planning on discussing this very subject a lot more in an upcoming podcast, um, if we can make our schedules work. Uh, it's an extremely important topic. It's um, one that really should be given a proper examination uh, on the show. Um, it has not been done, so uh, it can it can impact so many Oak Island theories out there. So if and yet it hardly gets a mention on the show. So if they can't do it there, we're going to try our best to do it here to discuss what ocean levels and what the sea level specifically in Oak Island might have been like during these time frames that we're talking about, um, you know, especially the Templar stuff. Right. Anyway, thank you again, Joe. Um, and thank you for bringing that subject up, because I think we're just going to take a deeper dive there. Now, next, we have an email from a, an old friend of ours. Great to hear from again. Jock, who writes, hi, Dave, you are the are perfect to moderate this Oak Island mystery and show. Thanks for keeping the interest going in your podcast. A couple of things today. I just listened to your synopsis for this week, and I believe he's referring to episode three here, not last week, but the week before. And he has a few points he wants to make. So let's get back to his email. Point number one. 
The last 10 years have clearly established people on the island through time. English military, French, Portuguese, Templars, Romans, <laughs> stone roads, U-shaped structures, docks, wharfs, wells, circular depressions, Nolan's Cross, and coins and pottery from all time periods. When the show started, the premise was that three young guys see strange lights on the deserted island and they find the money pit. The other premise is that someone buried a treasure on the island. I was going to sail to an unknown island, and if I was going to sail to an unknown island and bury a crazy treasure, such as the Ark of the Covenant, jewels, manuscripts, I would want my island to be deserted. The Laginas are shooting themselves in the foot by discovering all these previous inhabitants and still thinking there's a treasure down there. You would have to be pretty stupid pirates or Templars to bury a secret treasure with elaborate treasure tunnels with offset chambers and tricky flood tunnels next to an English army post or a ship repair facility or a tar manufacturing operation, fishermen's shacks or cabbage farms, those kind of things. I know their argument is that all those different people hid treasure. My argument is that for some strange reason, there have been continuous inhabitants for 400 years. There must have been a really obvious reason why Oak Island for those inhabitants. Was it like a moat to keep others away? Was the backside of the island a perfect protective harbor? Did they have great natural spring water? Where is the oak trees? Were the oak trees exceptional? I don't know, but that is why they keep finding more stuff every week. Okay, let me stop here before he gets to his second point and just interject. You don't ask a bad question here. Um, why here? Why would all of this be found here? And also, if this was inhabited by all these folks over all these years, how does then a treasure fit into this narrative? Um, I don't agree with you that they think all these people hid a treasure. I think the theorists will tell you, Jock, that all of these people had an idea that the treasure might be there. And all of these people at one point or another came to search unsuccessfully. And that tells you why you have all these different um, time frames, all these different uh, cultural artifacts from different parts of Europe and all over the place. And also why we might have so much undetected, um, un documented, I'm sorry, searcher material. I'm not sure I believe that, Chuck, but that's the best I can do for you. Okay, let's get on to his second point. He writes, two, my wife watched this episode and the scene at the drill and table came up. She commented, same every week. Yeah, mine does too. Uh, three, I hate it when the editors give us the goofy side glances, head turns, head bobs, etc. when two sets of Roman numerals come up on a piece of metal, allegedly, and a log. Do the guys on TV really believe the same person inscribed both? And four, the vertical log core is crazy, but I firmly believe that there are natural cavities in the rocks all over. These created sinkholes. There could be logs and wood that are sucked in. Isn't there a cave-in pit? And what about the circular featured depression on lot five? That core could be a natural log in a sinkhole. If you mapped all the tunnels they have announced in the 10 years in we each of uh, each of the more than 500 boreholes this place would look like an ant farm. Is that really logical? Did they prove the tunnel theory with the big caissons? All for now. Cheers, Jock. Jock, if you're referring to the current tunnel under the garden shaft, um, that is still in progress, right? And we're talking about that more today. And yes, the island does, does indeed, I would imagine, look like an ant farm underneath. <laughs> for at least it would have you know, look that way were it not for all the natural water and stuff that they come across. So there are lots of different tunnels and things all down there because of searchers. Take a look at the garden shaft and all the water that it had in it. 
I don't know about you, but um, that idea leaves me with very little hope that even if they get down to the location of this tunnel, that there is any chance that this tunnel is still intact. And therefore, they can follow it to the money pit. But we're going to have a lot more on that a little bit later on. Great stuff as always, Jack. I love your perspectives. Let's go now to George who writes, Enjoy listening to your podcast. It looks like Gary is trying his version of sleight of hand with the musket ball. Let me know what you think. When I first saw it, I had to go back and see if it was what I thought I saw. Look sketchy. George, um, I'm not sure I know exactly what you're referring to here. Sleight of hand? You're saying he faked something? Uh, listen, Gary finds this stuff all the time. He he knows what he's looking at, but uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding you. Write me back and let me know some more details. I'd I'd love to hear what you mean. Um, Thanks, George. I I, I wish I can give you an answer, but I don't know what you're referring to by sleight of hand. All right. The last one we got here is from Scott, who has done some fantastic work for us on the ceramics being seen on the show recently. Now, he sent in a terrific paper, like almost like a term paper, you know, um, via PDF. Uh, on the subject that I'm going to try to post on the Facebook page for you guys. But he also just writes this so you can follow along. He writes, because the paper is so long, here's a summary for you. Lot 5 Ceramics from Season 11, Episode uh, Taking Their Shot. He writes, a white ceramic found last season by Miriam Amaralt. It is dated from 1750 to... uh, He leaves that one blank there. Maybe I got that one wrong. But 1750 to the end of the 1700s. He also notes that there is a small white ceramic found by Helen Sheldon's team uh, mid to late 17th century, most likely later. Uh, sorry, 18th century, most likely later. And then he shows us pictures of, of ceramics from Robert Young's website. Photo one, he writes, Anglo-American ware, similar to uh, what Laird found in the circular structure mid to late 18th century. Photo two is described as debased scratch blue stoneware mid to late 18th century. And photo three, most likely more creamware mid to late 18th century. As always, thank you for the work you do on your podcast, Scott. So basically what we're seeing here, Scott, if I'm getting this right, is nothing we have not seen so far, and certainly nothing that is at all unusual for the area, in my opinion. I mean, yes, Oak Island was not exactly Manhattan, right? It still isn't. There's not people all over this island and haven't been. Just not a lot of people over the years have ever lived there. But the land has been in use by European settlers since the 1700s and even before. So finding some pieces of pottery from the mid to late 18th century is probably what one would expect to find if they went looking for it. And it also seems to be the kinds of things Robert Young had been finding for many, many years when he was there. Am I reading this all correctly, Scott? Am I getting kind of the point of what you're trying to say here? I think the frustrating thing for me is that we still have nothing from the experts on the show about how these artifacts help tell the story of the island, right? I mean, we're seeing evidence of inhabitants pre-1795, so why don't we focus on finding out who that could have been? And what they might have been doing here. Let's talk about the type of farming they were doing. The type of things that could contribute to this stuff, right? Even if it is farming, no problem. We need to know that. Because just because we think someone was there in the 1740s does not mean that they were there for any clandestine reason. So let's find out what that reason might be so we can cross it off the list, right? Scott, great work as always. Fascinating stuff. Folks, like I said, I'm going to try to post that over on our Facebook page. So if you have any questions on it, uh, you can leave a comment there for sure. Okay, folks, that's all for the emails today. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them directly to me at diggingoakisland at gmail.com.
It is time now to discuss Season 11, Episode 3 of The Curse of Oak Island called Muon the Horizon. <laughs> so this is obviously a pun and probably hilarious to someone. I only think it's fine. I find it funny when I say it. I'm not kind of getting why it's a pun. I guess Muon the Horizon. I don't know. Uh, I guess we're just trying to shoehorn the word Muon into the title somehow. Anyway... We're going to get to those pesky little muons in just a bit, but let's start off the review over at Lot 5. The first scene we see over there is Helen Sheldon, joined by Jack Begley and Peter Fornetti at the Stone Foundation, formerly known as the Weird Tree Thing. They're excavating and digging when Jack pulls out a like a corroded round metal object, and both he and Helen think that it might be a kind of a bit of a chain link, maybe fused together or corroded together. The narration asks if this could be evidence of someone hauling or moving heavy objects over here, but since we never really actually get to see the piece cleaned off and examined and dated and all that and confirmed what it is, we honestly can't make too much of this one. You know, um, unless we see from it again, hear from it again, I think we can just put that in the pile of things that, uh, you know, maybe they found wasn't all that interesting and just didn't want to bother telling us that. The next scene we get from Lot 5 shows Gary Drayton and Rick Lagina metal detecting, which almost always means they're going to find something worth talking about, right? Someone asked if I think they do this on purpose, meaning they save the big stuff for when Gary and Rick are shooting the scene together. Let me say this. Yes and no. I don't believe that they know with certainty if they'll find a coin and therefore they bring Rick over to do the digging. Because to me, that comes sort of dangerously close to accusing them of planting these coins so that we can have this scene with Rick there. I don't think they are. But Gary's pretty good at determining from the signal on his metal detector, as most professional metal detectors are, um, if that if a target is more likely to be a coin or a bit of precious metal than some other target, right? I hope that makes sense. Uh, so they save the ones that feel that way to Gary or sound that way to him for when Rick is around to do the shoot. I don't know that they do that. Um, they certainly can. I think that's probably as far as they go. And honestly, if they do that, I really find no issue with it. Anyway, on cue, <laughs> they find what they think is a coin. But when they take it to Laird Niven and Emma Culligan in the Interpretive Center to examine it some more and clean it up, it turns out not to be a coin, but instead another lead bale seal. Now, remember they found another one of these back in season nine, I think. That one turned out to be, if I believe, English in origin. Now, folks, if you don't know what this is, um, what a bale seal is, here's the long and short of it. When they used to ship big bunches of things like textiles or cotton or even tobacco, you would wrap them in a giant cloth or hemp bag, right, and seal the bag shut with one of these bale seals. And these sales often, seals often carried the mark of the company that produced the item or even shipped the item. Um, and, you know, whatever... <laughs> company made this big giant bag it's in, right? It's not a very uncommon thing to find, and I would expect also not that uncommon to find washed ashore on a place like Oak Island, which isn't far from, you know, those early shipping lanes. Be that as it may, Emma does say that this particular lead seal is not a match to the one found back in season nine, meaning chemical match or anything like that. And we can see that for ourselves when she shows us this fantastic image, what a great tool they have on here now, right? Of what this thing looks like under all that corrosion. And there are letters on it. And Laird is able to match those letters to a, 
a seal used by a company from London that shipped things in what he says is the 1700s. Now, he doesn't know much yet about the company, uh, but does know that it was contracted by the British Crown to ship goods for the military. Now, Laird says the lettering on it suggests that it could be even older than the 1700s, but honestly, the editing here is not very conducive to us learning what Laird really thinks about what he's seeing because he first says the company was active during the 1700s, but then he goes back and says the lettering suggests it comes from the 1600s or even earlier. So it's, a, it's very confusing to figure out exactly where he's pinpointing this. Hopefully we get more on this little piece as, you know, as these things actually have, in my mind, some information, a story to tell, right? That's what we want. These, this little symbol on here, this little maker's mark, maybe can tell us a little something about who might have been here. Towards the end of the episode, we see archaeologist Jamie Kuba doing a new magnetic scan thing over on Lot 5, this time over by this circular structure. She hopes um, that this can give her a better clue of where things related to the structure might be underground. So as she's doing this walking sweep, she stops and, and shows them a hit that she finds here on this, uh, you know, in this new area that she's looking at or over by this, this circular structure. But that's all we get. We don't get any more than that. Again, hopefully we get a little more on this scan in the not too distant future and get a little idea of what she might have come across. But that's all for Lot 5. So let's take a quick break, come back and discuss the money pit area. All right, once again, the bulk of this week's episode is in and around the money pit. And once again, we start with a scene at the money pit area that looks a lot like past opening scenes. But this time, they're over at the garden shaft, and we see the Dumas mining guys starting to pump water and start so that they can start excavating again. How many shafts over the years on Oak Island have been pumped dry of water? This is just the latest. You know, folks, it's early days here on this project, so um, it's going to get more interesting as the season rolls on. But right now we're just sort of uh, sort of cleaning up some of the edge stuff as we get into this garden shaft project later on. So what they do instead is jump over um, to uh, what is a war room meeting that's not directly related to uh, the garden shaft, but it is definitely money pit oriented um, and it is. You know, it's going to it's going to help set the course of action here for what they're going to do at the money pit. The guys are meeting with a man named Max Howarth and Doug Shouten, I think it was. And they're from a company called Ideon Technologies. This is the company that did the Muon scan of Oak Island. Now, a little review. This scan was done back in season nine, I believe. It uses cosmic rays to image the underground of the island. Now, we were told that this would take months to do this, to get all the muons collected and the data collected and processed, but instead, it took years. Also, and I know I've beaten this for us a long time, listeners, I'm sorry here, but this is the technology that, according to one of the producers of the show, would, quote, unquote, solve the mystery. Those are his words, not mine. Anyway, these guys are in the war room. They're there to present the findings. I think it's cool that they actually came to the war room for this rather than, you know, a video conference call. They're actually there on Oak Island. They explain what they're showing them 
are areas of high and low density on this graph kind of thing. And these are high and low density areas that are unusual. They use the word anomaly for them. So the implication here is high density could indicate things like a deposit of metals. I suppose while low density could indicate things such as tunnels or caves or former tunnels and caves that are now filled with water or, you know, soft dirt or something like that. The first anomaly they show the guys is a high density area just to the west of the garden shaft. It's at a depth of 65 feet, which is unusually shallow for things that they've been looking for recently in the money pit. And Marty points out also how there is a low density density anomaly just directly below this feature at 112 feet. Excuse me. Now, Dr. Fred Michaels is also in the meeting via video conference. He's one of the uh, scientists that has been helping to collect and analyze the precious metal levels uh, in the water found over in the Money Pit area. He says that this high-density anomaly is interesting because it is, in, it is in an area where these precious metals were detected. But the issue here with this particular thing is that the work being done at the garden shaft right now prohibits them from drilling on this target, just like it made them stop doing the borehole drillings in and around this tunnel area, right? The Ideon guys also then point out another anomaly. This one is another high-density target that is located approximately 85 feet southwest of the garden shaft and at a depth of 230 feet. They call it quote-unquote significant, but that's all we really get. Again, go back and watch this scene again. These guys definitely seem to have more to say on this target, but it gets edited out and you don't really get a feeling for what they think. It's kind of a strange editing choice there. And also, I was not clear on whether or not this target is too close to the garden shaft work to drill down on now and have a look. Uh, Maybe you guys caught that. I didn't catch it anyway. Also, Elizabeth on the Patreon asked, quote, is it possible they can dig deeper than that or is 230 feet the deepest they can dig? It's a good question, Elizabeth. The depth is getting very, very close to bedrock. Not being an expert on this, um, I think that's right at the bedrock level. Uh, I don't. Let's hang on to that one, right, until we see whether or not they actually go looking for this. If they don't, maybe we have our answer there, right? But they are clear about the next one, the next target or the next anomaly the Ideon guys talk to them about. Uh, as being far enough away from the garden shaft that they can drill down now and take a look. Uh, And this target is described as a, quote, unaccounted for low-density anomaly that perfectly overlaps the void you guys called Aladdin's Cave, end quote. That's from one of the Ideon guys. Now, Aladdin's Cave. This was an underground water-filled cavern the guys discovered last season, I believe, in Episode 7, the first, first few months of last season. Um, it, it, they also did a sonar scan of it. If you remember, put a camera down there and did a sonar scan of it as well. It looked really interesting, if not also really kind of natural, if I'm honest, right? It was a very big feature, way too big and random to be man-made looking, at least to me. It just didn't come off that way. Also, do you remember them guys ever calling it Aladdin's cave last year? Why don't I remember that? Why don't I remember that name for the feature? Anyway, Dr. Michaels confirms that there was gold in the water tested here as well, and everyone decides they should get the drill back to work and go looking at this target. Now, before we get into that, though, I think we got to stop here and talk about this Muon stuff just a little bit. And let me also say this. 
If you are someone that does not like to hear criticism of the show, this might be a good place to stop the podcast and we'll hear from you next week, right? Because I'm going to ask a lot of questions about what we saw on this episode, really for the rest of this, for the rest of this podcast. My first question I have is about this Muon data. Now, again, we were promised by a producer that this data would solve the mystery. His words, solve the mystery. Again, he had no ambiguity in those words. I'm not exaggerating here. This is what the producer of the show said on air. It's going to solve the mystery. Now, perhaps the data will turn out in the long run to be the data that guides them to the answer. But didn't this scene all seem a bit underwhelming to you? Mark on the Patreon asked, is that two years worth of data findings? Question mark. And Merrily commented, seriously, two years of analysis? And you know what, guys? I have to agree with them there, right? In the long run, how different or how much better is what we saw here from the Ineon guys than from the previous scans we've taken of the money pit using uh, JPR and seismic scanning and all that kind of stuff? I thought we were going to use this to get much more detail, to solve the mystery. Maybe even sort of like 3D imaging of all the wood down there and all that kind of stuff. But nothing anywhere near that was presented here for us. I mean, if this is all there is to this I, to this Muon data collection, what a letdown. The guys do what they can to make it sound incredibly compelling. But man, they had to be disappointed because there just wasn't that much detail or much information here in this. Maybe they're keeping some of it from us. I don't know. But I, I can't imagine why they would do that. Let me make my point a little bit clearer. They decide to start drilling on this target, Aladdin's Cave, with a new borehole they call uh, L-14, I think. <clears throat> the drill guys tell them that they've hit a void at 142 feet down, which is much shallower than the 165 feet they expected, uh, which is where the depth was, which is the depth of where this Aladdin's Cave was last year. So they all start speculating on whether or not this could be the roof of the cave, but wouldn't the Muon data have told them that already? I don't get it. <laughs> they, they couldn't even detect where the beginning of this cave was with this data. I, I, all right. I'm going to stop bellyaching about the Muon stuff for now because I'm going to have more in just a minute on something different. During the scene, Marty says something about how this could be where the money pit collapse took place. But I honestly have no idea why he thinks that. He doesn't explain that at all. Regardless, uh, it seems next week that we're going to get a camera down into this L14 Aladdin's cave and hopefully get sonar down there as well. And hopefully get some answers. This seems like the right place to put a case on. What do I know? All right. As I said, I'm not done with the criticism here. And I'm also not done with the money pit. So let's just talk for a quick second about another scene related to the money pit that comes kind of in between all this Aladdin cave stuff. We see Charles Barkhouse joining Gary Drayton to detect what are called or explained to us as the spoils of the garden shaft. As I assume what this means is, as what it always means, Dumas is digging down a little bit further um, through the water and through the muck, and they're picking this stuff up and dumping it into a dump truck and then dropping it into a pile for Gary and whoever to sift through. Now, the impression we get here is that the inside these spoils, inside these piles coming off a dump truck, is the same dirt that Gary, Rick, and Marty 
were in last year at the bottom of the garden shaft and detected, you know, a non-ferrous hit. Remember that cliffhanger? Remember Rick and Marty and Gary going down to the bottom, finding this hit of non-ferrous metal, high fives everywhere, super excited, big cliffhanger. Could this be it? Could this be the treasure? And then this is what they do with that bit of dirt. They pick it up in a hammer grab and dump it into the back of a dump truck to sift through in a giant pile with a metal detector? Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> Guys, I have to assume that something isn't right here. That, like, this is not from the same spot. This is something different. Because they can't be that irresponsible with what they thought was the treasure, right? Please tell me it's not the same spot. Anyway, again, enough belly aching. People always accuse me of being negative. This is not about being negative. This is about getting to the truth of the matter and what this is we're seeing, right? So we end uh, this whole episode with another war room meeting, this time to get carbon dating results from a piece of wood recently found in borehole C5N27. And this is along the route of the supposed tunnel running under the gardener shaft. Dates are pretty typically all over the place, but mostly within the 17th through the 19th centuries. And I believe they even mentioned all the way up to like the 20th century, right? Didn't Craig say something like 1917 or even 1950? It was kind of confusing, but carbon dating is an inexact science and always can be a little confusing, say the, to say the least. You kind of got to collate it all together and get an impression and an idea of how old it might be. You can't really hang on one specific date, you know. Steve Guptill remarks that these dates are close and seem to match in a lot of ways with the other wood samples from this possible tunnel, which in my mind can be seen as evidence that this is indeed a singular structure, a tunnel running somewhere. Uh, you know, we have to say, though, from what we've learned over the last couple of years, Doug Kroll's hope that they might find a quote unquote open tunnel down there doesn't seem to be a realistic thing. It seems to be really something of a long shot. But let's hope we at least can get to a point where we can decide whether or not what we're seeing is, in fact, a tunnel. And hopefully that comes soon. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can help out the show by uh, becoming a patron. If you think this show's worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Uh, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo, username at Dave McBride Music. I appreciate that. Also, if you'd like to help out the podcast in another way, uh, please... Feel free to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks to everyone who's done that. Uh, I know there's other ways to do it besides Apple Podcasts. It's just that Apple's the only one I use. I don't really know much about the other spots but uh, and other, other podcast forums. But anyway, if you could do it, great. If not... <laughs> It's the thought that counts, right? Uh, you can also uh, follow the show on Facebook. Uh, we're at Diggin' Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggin'oakisland at gmail.com. And my warning again, keep in mind, if you send me an email or even a direct message on Facebook, I may answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, please just make a note of that. Folks, it is crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.